This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody, to Journey of Unity number 17. Those of you who have not yet joined our WhatsApp group, uh, tinyurl.com forward slash Rabbi FCN. And before we start, I just want to say that two just housekeeping things. Number one is um, I came out, Baruch Hashem, we came out with a new book on dating called The Complete Guidebook to Dating for Marriage. It is now being sold everywhere. Um, so if you're dating or if you have a child who's dating, good idea to pick one of these up. At the same time, the Complete Guidebook to Family Purity is back in stock. And for those of you who would like this, Complete Guidebook to Family Purity. The design and everything, whatever, we'll all later. We have very nice designers. Um, and we do judge books by the cover. So <laughs> that is the story with those two books. Um, you can pick them up in your local farm store, fldm.com and amazon.com. Okay, now tonight's class, Really, to be honest with you, um, I, I have like five or six classes here. So I'm not going to necessarily um, go into certain ideas here, which we probably could spend an hour on in, in as much depth as I think we could. Um, but hopefully we're going to touch on some really, um, you know, ideas which I believe really can transform marriages. So I, I want to go through this slow. I think this is probably one of the most uh, understood or you know, famous psukim, I guess, if you will, in Eshaz Chayel, the Pasuk of Piha, Pascha, Bechachma, Besoyer's Chesed, Al-Lishayna. Piha, Pascha, Bechachma, Besoyer's Chesed, Al-Lishayna. I also noticed that I do that. I always repeat it twice. I don't know why. Okay. Just something I just picked up about myself right now. So, Piha, Pascha, Bechachma, Besoyer's Chesed, Al-Lishayna. What does that mean? It means that her mouth opens with Chachma, Besoyer's Chesed, and there is a Torah of Chesed, Al-Lishayna, on her tongue. So, I think the classic thing, like probably every Friday night as your husband is singing to you, you're probably thinking of what that means is piha paska bachachma, that her mouth says chachma, like it opens with chachma. I think that that's probably the most classic understanding. It's probably how I understood it for most of my life, which piha paska bachachma, you think like this Asia style or this, this man, this woman who's, you know, doing things right. They're smart and they're sharing wisdom. And that's how I always classically understood it. But if you look in the Mepharshim, they explain this very, very different than that. They explain it, I'm going to do this on levels. They explain this in my own words, that she opens her mouth with chachma. Only when she has chachma to say, she opens her mouth. If she doesn't have chachma to say, then she doesn't open her mouth. What's the difference between the first explanation, which is that she says smart things, or that when she has smart things to say, that's when she opens her mouth? The answer is, is that there's many people who have very smart things to say. But a truly smart person they think before they open their mouth. Meaning most people in most relationships, they're motivated to talk because there's something that's driving them to talk. They're angry. They're upset. You know, they want to call their spouse out on something that they did. Piha Pascha, her mouth only opens the Chachma. When she's taken the time to actually like think through, like, why am I saying something now? And I think this is broken up into different levels. I think the first thing is obvious is that she's conscious that before she even opens her mouth, like when, when do I open my mouth? If I'm angry, I don't say anything. If I have something smart to say, if I have something you know, that I've thought through, there's chachma, now I'm able to articulate myself. Now is a good time for me to say something, right? How she says it, how she approaches it. I would also argue when she approaches it, right? About the second her husband walks in the door, that like now is the time to do this. You have to make sure like the kids are not running around the house. The house is calm. There's a good time. Now we could have a conversation. Now is a good time to talk. P. 
Pia Pasta, she only opens her mouth, Bechachma. She's thought this through. It's the right time. It's the right setting. It's the right environment. She's thought through what she's going to say. She thought through how she's going to say it. And that's the, the catalyst to this. Now, there's a, a bigger piece to this, which I find with many, many, many couples, which is that there, and, and it could be, I just have to acknowledge this, it could be because I'm not a therapist that I say this. There's a lot of people that want that, that therapeutic friend, that person who's just there to hear the dirt and to hear like the pain and to just go, oh yeah, you, you go girl. You know, like just encourage them and tell them like, yeah, it's so hard. And, and, and that's valid. A lot of people need that validation. But oftentimes people are so fixated on the problem that they're not fixated on what they themselves are trying to accomplish. The concept of Chachma, of chachma if you think about it, is Ezel Chacham Haroya Asanelet. And we're using a very interesting term here, which we're going to talk about more in a minute, which is that she does not open her mouth with Bina. Bina is like in depth. It's heavy. Thought it through. There's emotion. This woman doesn't do that. A smart person thinks through themselves, why am I saying what I'm saying? What's the reason that I'm saying what I'm saying? Why are you having this conversation right now? Why are you unloading on your spouse? Why are you criticizing your spouse? What's the motivation behind what you're doing? The answer usually is because you want something. And if you think through what you want, usually you crave the closeness and therefore you've brought up a heavy topic in order to get the closeness. But nine out of 10 times, it's specifically because of the way that you brought it up, the timing that you brought it up, how, where, what, when, the way that it happened, that it, it, it's counterintuitive. It, it doesn't work. It backfires. And because of the way it was approached, your spouse withdraws even more. The chachma means that you're actually more fixated on the change that your marriage needs rather than the fact that you need to be heard. And I'm not invalidating the fact that people need validation, and I'm not invalidating the fact that people need understanding. I think those are two very critical pieces in marriage. But oftentimes, people are so fixated on that that they're not fixated on the short attainable goal. So what are we doing from here? Where are we changing our actions from yesterday to today? And instead, it's just the concept that we keep turning the knife and turning the knife and turning the knife. When somebody says to you, okay, I have, a, I have a good idea. Why don't we stop talking about the past? And why don't we start talking about the future? Why don't we start talking about what you can actually both change? And I think that simply stated, she's not just opening her mouth and just saying something. She's thinking through, what do I really want out of this conversation? I want my husband to understand that I need something different than I got yesterday. Oh, you're getting something different? Usually that's the best apology you're going to get. And I think that if you'd ask most people, would you rather an apology or would you rather change? Smart people would rather change. They, wouldn't, they don't care so much about the apology. The apology is empty if there's no change. So why, is, why do you have somebody keep apologizing and apologizing and apologizing? I say this all the time that men are programmed from a young age to say the words, I love you and I'm sorry. And those two words can just run out of meaning after the hundredth time. There has to be more to it. And if they keep apologizing, they're usually just apologizing for the fact that they're in this situation. But if they show you, I get it, I understand you need something different, then they start doing something different, then you'll feel different. Then you don't have to be so worried about the apology. The apology is just there to show you that I want to do something different in the future. But now I'm doing something different in the future. You hear what I'm saying? That's number one. Number two is going on this point, this concept of chachma. So the Malbim talks about this idea that piha, like her mouth, is like a lashon of chachma, 
And Lashaina is a Lashin of Bina. So he like highlights this concept that there's a difference between men and women, right? And Bina and Chachma, which is the two primary emotions or, or perspectives that come into a marriage. And I, I think, and I, I said this many, many times, but my wife shared with me something tonight that I thought was very brilliant. I've always said that a smart wife is approaching this with Chachma. What does that mean? Really, her primary thing is, is Bina. So the answer is that she's approaching her husband. And when you're approaching your husband, you talk to him in man language. Conversely, if a man is approaching his wife, he approaches her in woman's language. Most women crave somebody who's caring and understanding, who gets them, who's, oh, I hope you feel better. He validates her. She has a hard day. He can talk to her, say, oh, that must have been so hard for you. Things that are not intuitive for men. You will almost never find the man in a dorm who talks like that to his roommates. Never. Okay? Doesn't leave him cards and chocolates. None of that. So when women get married and they expect this from their husband. So there's a message here. The message is you want to build your house. The chachma is what's going to build your house. What does that mean? It means pia paska b'chachma. If you start thinking like the opposite gender, then you'll convey to them what they want to hear. You'll talk to them in their language then usually they will respond back in your language. And I think that it's an avayda of every marriage. That so many marriages, people come in, they say, well, that's just not me. I mean, I, I never wrote any cards to my, my roommates. I never bought them flowers. So what do you want from me? And that's just, no, you, you didn't. But now that you're married to somebody, there's a certain understand, understanding that you're going to give them what they need, want, and desire without expecting anything in return. And that's really the essence of Kesher, connecting to somebody else. So connecting to somebody else recognizes that this, this person is different. And the amount of diagnoses that I've heard from people sitting in my office about their spouse, all the medical diagnoses, all the things that the person has wrong, the bipolar and then and the borderline personality, all the stuff that people talk about their spouses, usually is just a failure on their part to recognize that their spouse is a different creature who needs different things. They're the opposite gender. They just need different things than you. And if you step out of yourself and stop saying, this is what I, I'm not, that's not me. And you say, well, I, this is me because I'm no longer a single person. I'm now married. I have to give you something different. That's where you're going to see a tremendous amount of result. So what did my wife share with me that was added to this? So my wife added a certain thing, which I think is, is, is brilliant. It's the idea that in many marriages, most people find their passion within their life as their life goes along. But oftentimes those passions are not shared by their spouse. You have a husband that's all into sports or politics. You have a wife who's all into cooking or shopping, whatever the case may be. And oftentimes it's more altruistic. You find that this person's into this chesed activity, this person's into a different type of chesed activity. It could be learning, it could be business, it could be anything. The good marriages that like really want to take like a leap like into like the next stratosphere is where you look at your spouse you don't just talk their language. You don't just turn to your husband and go, well, I know that most men need food. You're home. Ah, I made you food. Great. Enjoy your supper. It's not as simple as that. It's that you look at your spouse and you find their passion. And then you adopt their passion. And then their passion becomes yours. And it's a shared passion. It's something that I always took for granted in my own marriage. That my wife and I, every like Friday nights when we don't have guests, we would sit up and take like ideas. And, and rip them apart and put them together and rip them apart and put them together, which is really the basis, you know, sitting with my Rebbein, but for almost all the classes that you hear, it's based on like, these 
hours. It's really years of, you know, spending these hours of doing this. And I always took this for granted. And it's funny because a couple of weeks ago, we were sitting up Friday night. Um, actually, it was Shabbos day. And we told our kids at some point, we said, okay, guys, you need to leave the dining room now. Me and mommy, we have this idea and we need to work this through. And it was, it was like two and a half hours of us. Like we were like moving stuff around the table. Like, okay, so this is this and this is that. And, and my kids came in after like an hour and a half. Like, you guys okay? We're like, yeah, we're okay. And, and then they, they like, okay, good. So keep doing what you're doing. And then they left. And it was, it was, it was like these hours of building because for us, this is a passion of what we do. And I always took that for granted. Like, of course, like every couple does this. And then the more I'm telling this to people, they're like, you do that? That's so strange. But there's a truth to the fact that whatever it is that you're found, your spouse finds to be exciting, jump on board with that. So my wife had a couple where the wife was complaining about the husband slightly. He was a good guy, great guy. Just, you know, we could have used a slight upgrade. And my wife said to her at one point, she said, tell me your husband's passion. Tell me what it is. So she told her what it is, what I don't want to say it out loud, whatever it was, whether it was sports or politics or whatever it was. And my wife said to her, I want you to find this passion and adopt this passion. So this woman went, started doing a lot of research, and her husband was very active on Twitter, X, whatever it's called today. And she literally started tweeting at him and retweeting his tweets and sending him stuff. Oh, yeah, this guy, you know, like whatever the, whatever the sugi was, right? She was really, really, really involved with it. And she called my wife after about three weeks and she said, for the first time in decades, my husband walked in the door. He just looked at me and he said, you, let's go for a walk. She's like, I almost fainted. Like, I, 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 what happened here? The, the guy's dying to spend time with me. I never, ever had this before. Why? Because usually he's so invested in the things that this is for him. It's a passion. It's exciting. And then he comes home and he's like, you know what happened today? I damaged the car. You know what happened today? A kid failed the test. He's like, ugh, so draining. If you want to really upgrade your life, you want to upgrade your marriage, find the thing that your spouse is crazy about and become a little crazy about it. Don't just let them do what they want to do. Like start living it. Start showing an interest in it. And I'm sure most people, if you, if you spent a few minutes, you'll find that your spouse has multiple passions, multiple things that really get them going. And, 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 and they talk about it and they're so animated about it. And most people, like they turn to their phone when their spouse starts. They're like, you heard what happened in the Super Bowl, this, that. You heard this politician, right? And your spouse is like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're not talking to me right now, right? This is for your friends. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you could do that. But then that whole part of that person's life is not shared with you. And I'm not saying you have to like get involved in every single part. But if you take a little bit of time to find one or two things that your spouse really enjoys and you start to enjoy it, you start to live it, you'll see your marriage really, really grow. So that's the first couple of ideas. The next concept is as follows. Okay. It says, What does that mean? So we said the Malbum. Malbum says that Lashayna here is talking about Bina. Bina is a certain depth, a certain to seeing things. The Torah of Chesed is Alashayna. So I think that the simple explanation over here is that this person, the way that they talk, it's, it's a Torah of Chesed. What does that mean? It means their spouse comes out of the conversation going, wow, thank you for spending time with me. This was an enjoyable conversation. It's almost like the fact that the two of us were talking, that was enjoyable. There's no, there's no heaviness. I'll, I'll, I'll say it even more. Like there's certain people that are addicted to drama. Like that's like their whole life. Like every, every negative thing that happened in the world, like that's their whole thing. Oh, you heard this person and that person. It's like all the negative news. That's their, that's their world. 
No. Means that your spouse comes out of a conversation with you and they feel like, wow, I feel uplifted. Just like I do chesed for you, you do chesed for me. Simply spending time with you is enjoyable. I feel uplifted. Now, my wife has like this person I'm going to talk about in a second. His name is Dr. John DiMartini, who is a, a brilliant, brilliant world, you know, in the world of psychology. And he talks about Many ideas, again, some of them would take literally hours to unpack. But he talks about the concept of a person balancing their perspective. And one of the ideas that he talks about a lot, and really if you think about it, it's, it's really a Jewish idea, that concept of komad avrachman letavavid. But in a simple psychological model, he talks about the concept that really everything in your life is good. Or if you want to say it a little different, everything in your life has good within it. Every circumstance has good. And he talks about even things that are very painful, whether it's divorce or broken engagement or sickness. If you, if you stop for a minute and you think about it, there is good inherent in that, in that thing. And there's a series of steps that he talks about, which I'm not going to go into now, where that, that was our Shabbos meal a couple of weeks ago, okay? where he talks about the concept of shifting your own balance within your perspective, your own perspective within the balance that you see things. And I, I want to explain it to you in my own words, just the beginnings of this, because I think that it really lends itself to a certain, a certain really hashkafa, but like a, an, an understanding of things. So the first idea, if I would just say this out, is that I think the way most people perceive the world is that it's almost like dots on on a graph i'll say it like that so meaning to say if i said to you okay here's my here's my table and this is going to be extreme good and this is going to be extreme bad right the right side is good the left side is bad and i said to you you know um somebody's mother died lately right is that good or bad i think most people would be like she died bad right we just put it as a point on on the map right it's bad from from all the way good to all the way bad all the way back, right? We just put a blip, right? Now, if I say to you, tell me about your your spouse, right? Are they good or are they bad? So most people would look at this thing and hopefully you're on the good side. Well, let's assume you're not on the good side, right? You would go ahead and you would just put a blip on the thing and say they get a, let's call it a 50-yard line, they get a 50 or they get a 75 or however you want to view it, right? You put them as a blip because we perceive things as blips, as dots. And it's those dots that, shape our perspective. My spouse is here. My spouse is there. I think the Chachma behind a lot about what he talks about, and he doesn't say this directly, but this is my own Chiddush, is that it's not true. Your spouse is not a blip. Your spouse is, your spouse is not a dot. Your, your spouse is almost like a ball of energy. And it's not just your spouse. It's really every single event, if you think about it, right? Let's use the event of somebody winning the lottery, right? Very cliche, but You'd say that that's 100% good. But then I start telling you, well, by the way, all your friends are going to start acting a little weird around you, right? All your neighbors are going to start acting weird around you, right? All of a sudden, you're going to have, right? right? So you can start thinking through that there's a lot more associated with it just simply being 100% good. Now, it doesn't mean that it's bad, but it just means that your perspective on it, all those warning bells that need to go off probably will go off just to keep you balanced or more balanced, not 50%. You're not going to go, okay, I won the lottery. Okay, you're going to be, I'm super excited. But at the same time, I recognize that there's some inherent bad in it. Just like when somebody, for example, somebody's, 
you know, parent passes away. You could also appreciate that they're no longer suffering. Right now, they fulfill their tough good, right? And, and you think about these things, you're like, oh, I didn't think about that before. But that shifts your perspective. And all of a sudden, you're able to be like, oh, okay. So it's not 100% bad. And winning the lottery is not 100% good. There's, there's a balance here. And it's not balanced. It just shifts your perspective. And that perspective is what changes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Therefore, there's nothing that's truly an event as a dot or a blip. There's nothing that's like that. Everything really is, is almost like a ball of energy. And it's that energy that contains within it the good and the bad and the struggles and all the potential. And it's really all of that which is creating the reality. So whereas you might look at your spouse and say, well, he's you know 50% good or 80% good or whatever the case is, the truth is that there are certain areas where he probably struggles and there's certain areas where he probably excels, right? And it's not about an average, but if you are having a hard time with your spouse, oftentimes if you focus on the good parts of him and the things that he actually does give you, it will shift your perspective and the way that you approach him. Does this all make sense? Okay. So that's 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 that first idea. That we're we're sort of like these, I call this these like blobs of energy. And these energies are really what contain all the good and the bad and the struggles. Now, leading to the next point, which is that if you think about most marriages, I think that most people view their marriages as being blips, not their spouses, but they view their marriages, meaning if most people were, were asked, rate your marriage from one to 10, 10 being the best, most people would have a number, 6.8, 7.2, whatever, right? Maybe some people would say 10, halavai, hope so, right? But maybe some people would say zero, but that's probably how most people would rank their marriages. Now, what struck me over the last like 100 meetings that I had was once I thought about this idea and I started like viewing people almost like as this like ball of energy, was that in a, in, in a sense, you're taking two balls of energy and you're sort of connecting them to each other. And think about it almost like an energy ball that has like a connection to an outlet. There's circuits that are conducting electricity and that is circulating between these, tall, these two balls of energy. So this unit now, if you think about most people's interaction with their spouses, he gets his food, she gets her emotional he, he, you know, she makes their money. You start like looking back and forth. You just start seeing there's so much give and take and give and take and give and take. I always say it's like marriage is almost like a, a high speed ping pong match. It's just like every second, every interaction, every text, every, every communication is like you make the person feel good or feel bad. You attack them, you disconnect them, and then you connect with them. You buy them flowers. There's so much that's interactive between a couple on a consistent basis, but it's not one thing. It's literally thousands or millions of things that are floating between a couple. And therefore, what happens to most couples? At some point, most couples, the reason why they struggle is because somebody pulled out the plug. Somebody pulled out that connection. At some point, somebody made a move, whether it was just, I can't handle this anymore, and they just drifted back, or it was somebody attacked somebody else, and the other person drifted back. But usually there was a moment or a series of moments where there was some sort of disconnect. And when that energy disconnects from the wall, that's when everything just dies dead in its tracks. And when one person stops giving, the other person usually stops giving. And then you're like, what do you mean? Why do you expect me to do X when you don't do Y? Well, why do you expect me to do A when you don't do B? Why do you expect me to do Z? But it just becomes a conversation which, yeah, the energy is just not flowing. And oftentimes, if one person were to say to the other person, I'll... I'm willing, let's plug this back in. Let's plug this back into the wall. Let's reconnect. 
and the other person's not willing, you'll give, give, give for a certain amount of days, then you'll run out of steam. I'm not receiving anything in return. But if a couple both hits the reset button together, and you watch that energy start spinning up very quickly, you oftentimes can see a couple that was really in a bad spot come to a completely new place in their marriage. And if I were to like sum up like literally probably thousands of hours of, of sitting and counseling couples, it comes down to that exact piece. Sitting and saying we were disconnected, therefore all the stories, all the stories make no difference. Because all of those stories are talking about the past. But the reason why we were there was simply because somebody pulled out the plug. And because somebody pulled out the plug, the energy was gone. It's not your fault that you yesterday didn't buy me a new dishwasher. And three weeks ago, I called you and you didn't answer my phone. Those are all just micro stories within the greater story, which is that this whole ball of energy is not connected anymore. It's not connected. So, of course, but all those stories are pointless. It's more about the end goal. Like Pia Pascal, the Chachma, it's about the end goal. The end goal is that we want to reconnect and then watch that energy start circulating. I said this story before, and I, I think it's worth repeating. I, I, many years ago, I came out with like a, a marriage curriculum, and there was a couple that was watching it. There was, they were sitting in the room, they were watching it in their house, it came in grandparents were like in their 80s and as they were walking by the grandfather said like you know what are you guys watching and they said oh we're watching you know like a shalom bias thing and the grandfather said ah made a comment like in hungarian like ah these young couples you know they need the help the grandmother she stopped and she started watching over their shoulders and as she was watching they noticed that she was sobbing and they turned to her and she said if we would have known about this 50, 60, 70 years ago, you know, life would have been very, very different. Now, why do I say that? Because I think that many couples, like if you'd say like, what's the secret, you know, something that people don't recognize so much, it's the idea that it's not the newlyweds necessarily that are struggling so much. It's it's the people who got married. I don't want to say the 80s, but my wife often, oftentimes talks about how the 80s was like the most blissful time. I mean, it was after the war. It was long enough after the war that they weren't, you know, right. But it was also before technology and everybody was happy with their dumpy cars and they weren't such a rush on like all the gosh me. like my wife oftentimes talks about like the 80s was like that time of just blissfulness. Like I was born in the 80s. My wife was born in the 80s. Tonight happens to be my birthday, by the way, my Hebrew birthday. If I speak a bench. So I've oftentimes talked about that. Like, yeah, like the 80s was like that blissful time. But the thing that's, interesting is that a lot of people who got married during that bliss it's it's only because i don't mean to say this in a harsh way but they oftentimes realize years later that it was just the ignorance that was blessed meaning at the moment it was like we are good because we don't we don't necessarily need to know any better and a lot of the classes that went into this and i don't mean to disparage anybody of course everybody all hassan and kala teachers were amazing always but there was a lot of Classes that were just like Eish, Maim, Ruach, Nefesh, Neshama, things that were just like so esoteric, but like nothing real, no real tools for like, this is how you build a home. This is what you need to know. And so many people came into marriage. Maybe their college classes had 200 people sitting in a room. It was almost like a coliseum or it's like, and, and whatever, for some people it worked, but for many, many, many people that didn't work so well. And it's only when they realize like, I was just ignorant. I'm not, this is not blissful. I'm not happy anymore. 
And when they look back at their marriages and they come in, which I see often, very often, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who come into my office, they're not newlyweds. They walk in and they realize like, oh, oh, so what happened here? And then they have to start developing these tools that they were never given. And then it's those tools specifically that start maybe perhaps seeing a change. But what's the, what's the nakuda? Like where, where did things go back? If you try to trace back the marriage, it's that at some point, that ball of energy experienced a disconnection or a realization that I'm not getting what I need. Oftentimes because it was never conveyed. It was never taught. It was never given over. So how's anybody supposed to know? So nobody's bad. Nobody made any wrong moves. It's just, that's just the reality. And now they wake up and they go, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm not happy. Why am I not happy? Well, it's usually because there was some sort of lack of kesher, some sort of disconnection. And when that happens, you have to oftentimes just realize that it's, it's two-sided. It's not one person's fault. It was the plug got pulled and therefore all that energy dissipated. Um, you know, one of my friends, I remember right after we got married and we started going to like Shalom Bayes Shiurim, he was talking to his his parents. And he said, they said, oh, where are you coming from? We were living in Eretz Yisrael. He said, where are you coming from now? He said, oh, I came from a share. They said, you had a share so late at night? And he said, yeah, I, I had a, a Shalom Bayes share. Are you okay? Getting divorced? I said, no, I'm not getting divorced. I'm happily married. But the concept was so foreign. Like, what? You're listening to somebody talk about marriage? It means you must have a problem. But it's interesting because we just had a, a Shabbaton this week, all Sarah Le Shabbaton. And probably one of the top questions that was asked was from girls that are petrified to get married. And they're like, all I hear are, are, are yeah, are people struggling. But in, in an interesting twist, plot twist, yeah, marriages today have, in a certain sense, many more tools and more, more preparation than ever before. So not saying we live in the most blissful times. We do to a certain degree, but I'm just throwing it out there that a lot of times if you, if you want to isolate what's going on with a couple, what's really going on is the realization that the plug was disconnected from the wall and therefore that energy just stops circulating and that's what happened. Now, brings us to the last concept, the last idea, and that is the Medrash. So the Medrash says that who is... Who is this Aishas Chayel? Who is this Pasuk of Pia Pasuk of Hachma? The, the Medra says this is a very, very um, smart woman. That she saved the city with Chachma. And who is this person? This was Sarach Bas Asher. So we're all familiar with Sarach Bas Asher. Who was she? She was Asher's daughter. When Yosef was in Mitzrayim, and they had to break the news to Yaakov, she came along and she sang a song. Right? There's probably a very famous song that they sing in kindergarten of like, or something, I don't know, I'm sure, whatever. But there's like a very famous song. And she came and she said, right? That's okay. That's the song. Got it. Okay. So that was Sarah Fasasha, right? And she came and she told Yaakov the story. But but what happened after that? Yaakov Avinu blessed her that she should have a very, very long life and she should go into Ganeden alive. And it's brought down in Navi that she lived for many, many, many hundreds, not thousands of years. And there was another story which happened with David Amalek, with the same Sarah Basasha. And what is the story? The story is, is that there was a man who was married B'Malchus. His name was Sheva ben Bichri. And Sheva ben Bichri had disparaged David and sort of come after his Malucha. And he ran into a city. And David sent his general Yayav to the city. And he told Yayav, somebody who's married B'Malchus, off with his head. Time to kill him. So Yoav came to the city and he sieged the whole city and he was ready to kill the whole city because they're harboring somebody who was married by Malchus until outstep Sarah Bas Asher. And she said, 
to him, Yaya, can I talk to you? And he acknowledged her, so who she was. And she had a conversation with him and she convinced him that he should not siege the whole city, kill everybody out. Rather, he should wait, wait a little bit. I'll go into the city. I'll get them to agree to hand them over. And basically, Yoav said, okay, if you can go in and convince everybody to toss this man's head over the wall, then we'll leave. But otherwise, we're going to kill out the city. And she went in and using her voice, she convinced everybody to gather around. They all came. She convinced them. This is a worthwhile thing to do. We learn out a lot of halachas from here, having one person given over to the authorities versus having a whole city killed, et cetera, et cetera. But she went ahead and she convinced the city to take this man and to execute him. And they tossed his head over the wall. Yoav took his head, went back to David. David said, great. And that was the end of the story. What, what, what did she do? What, what did she do that was so amazing? The answer is she used her voice in a very smart way. She used it first by Yaakov to make sure that Yaakov didn't, you know, expire from shock, the fact that Yosef was alive. And then she used it over here also. She had a very, very unique talent is that she opened her mouth, the Chachma. When she opened her mouth, she thought this through. How am I doing this? What am I saying? Etc. And that was the key to her success. Now, I want to use this as a small pivot over here to what I find with so many couples. And it's a concept which I think really takes a lot to master, but if somebody's able to, they will they can they can build their house just on this one idea. Oftentimes when I'm listening to couples talk, I I sit back and I'm just I'm not even hearing the words. Don't tell this to anybody, but I'm not even hearing the words. I'm just hearing like the tones that are being conveyed. And you you hear people yelling and screaming and belittling and I'm like, forget forget the story. Like they're trying to prove a point. And they think that it's a logical point. The point is, I came home, my wife didn't have food, I got upset, whatever it was, right? It's the whole story. And texting, I didn't know where she was. Turns out she was with her friend and they whatever the story was. But a home has to permeate with a certain, I'm gonna use the word like like an intimate relationship. I'm talking like living room intimacy concept of talking to somebody calmly and softly like with a with a a soft voice that's marriage people always say like you know wasn't i right it's not about being right you don't if you don't hear yourself talk if the way that you convey your thoughts your feelings your emotions with so much passion that it scares the other person away then there's no chachma behind what you're doing Yes, logically you were right, but how do you talk the way you're talking? The the concept of Pia Pascha Bachachma, I think, is not just the words. It's not just the time. It's not just the placement. It's the tone. It's the way that somebody goes about it. That in itself, that in itself, I think can make all the difference in a relationship. I just saw a story that went as follows. There was a man who was, he walked into a bank. And he realized right after he walked in that there was like a huge tumult that had happened in the bank. So he had a meeting with like the vice president of the bank and the vice president like put, pulled him into the office. But he said, it seems like there's a lot going on outside. Like everybody seems to be like all tumbling. So the vice president said, I'll, I'll tell you what just happened. He said there was a woman who came in and she went over to the teller and she gave her card. And she said, I want to draw 300 shekel. Just I need to go buy some groceries. Can I draw 300 shekel? 
So the teller swiped the card and said, I'm really sorry, but you're, you hit your overdraft limit. Like there's no money left in your bank. So she was like, okay, just, I just, it's just 300 shekel. Like just extend the overdraft limit. So the teller was like, it doesn't work that way. The bank has a policy. It's let's say a thousand shekel overdraft. You're already over a thousand. That's it. Can't give you money. So this lady got very annoyed and she started screaming. It's 300 shekel. It's like a hundred dollars. Like big deal. Just give me the money. I need to go shopping. So the teller started screaming at her and said, well, what do you think this is? Is it gamach? Like, it's, you can't come here and just ask for money that you don't have in your account. Sorry, you got to leave. This woman was very furious. And she started screaming at the teller like, okay, you don't have to tell the whole world my business. And she started storming out. And as she stormed out, she passed by one of the banker's offices. And the two of them made eye contact for a second. And this woman just stormed out into the parking lot. Somebody ran after her and said, I'll give you 300 shekel. But she was like, she was done. She, she was out of there so fast. The banker whose office this woman ran past, the guy was stuck in the door, saw the woman, and he just like froze for like a second. And then he sat down in his seat and the vice president noticed that this guy was very shaken. So he walked over to him and he said, what's, what's the matter? Like you're shaken from the fact that our teller just yelled at a, at a, at a person. Like, like what, why do you seem like you're so off? So the guy said, I want to tell you why. He said, 40 years ago, he said, I was eight years old and I went with my mother to a grocery store. Wherever we lived, we went to a grocery store and we walked in and we wanted to buy some stuff, some milk, eggs, whatever. And when we were checking out, the guy said, okay, it's, you know, 200 shackle. So my mother said, uh, you know, put it on my account. So the grocer said, put on your account. Your account is way overdrafted. You know, there's no, there's no getting anything more from the store, right? He said, Mazda, is a bank? This is a bank, right? Either come in and you pay or not. So this woman was dead embarrassed. And she said, come on, it's 200 shekel. Like, I'll come back. Things are hard now. And the banker was screaming at her. And he kept saying, Maza, is a bank? Is a bank? Put everything back on the shelf or come back with money. And this kid, this eight-year-old who was standing there, was dead embarrassed for his mother. And he didn't realize the situation at home. And his mother had to go put everything back on the shelf. And they walked out the door. And he remembers the, the look on his mother's face. He said, what shocked me was that this woman was that grocer's daughter. He said, it really hit a nerve. Both of them were right. In theory, they were both right. Right? They both had, what is this? Is the bank? What is this? Is the gamach? But sometimes a little bit of compassion, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of lowering your voice, a little bit of talking to a person can get you so much more than yelling and screaming and belittling and putting the other person down. And usually it's coming from pain. But even when a person is right, if you just stop and you say, I have to think through what's the end result of this conversation. Are we going to be closer to each other or further from each other? If you're going to be further the way you're opening your mouth, then it's not a good idea to open your mouth. You have to seek guidance how to say something. You have to see guidance when to say something. You have to see guidance what to say. It should come out like butter, like smooth, like we're on the same team. We love each other. We're here just to get this energy flowing. Oh, you could do that? You're, you're brilliant. You just made your marriage like resurrect from the dead. 
If you can't do that and it's just like knives stabbing at each other, even though you have the right thing to say, you oftentimes will cause that cut. That cut will cause your spouse to withdraw. Your spouse will withdraw and the whole energy will be killed. So this is a brilliant pasach, which is why it became such a famous song. Right? Which is, yeah, you have to put these two ideas together and then it's literally nuclear. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.